Highways Voices, the podcast of Highways News, your one-stop destination for all the news about the highways and transport technology industries, and our must-read daily newsletter. Highways Voices time again, and this time we go back to an issue we first talked about on the podcast more than 18 months ago. The real challenge comes in calculating scope three from supply chain, and that comes with a, a cluster of problems on the basis that the supply chains are typically really very complicated. We chat to the Future Highways Research Group about the new guidance for local highways authorities about consistent carbon measurement and reporting that includes Scope 3 emissions. There's no hot air, just the honest truths on this week's Highways Voices. Highways Voices, in association with partner organisations, the Transport Technology Forum, ITS UK, LCRIG and ADEPT. Simon Wilson, Director Approving Services joins us again today to talk about counting carbon after Adrian Tatum's had a look at some of the stories catching his eye on the Highways News website this week. A new groundbreaking study warns that young people cannot access work, education and social opportunities due to transport barriers. 16 to 24 year olds made 21% fewer trips compared to 25 to 64 year olds in 2019. And this gap has widened over the past 20 years. This is according to a new study by Sustrans. At the stage of life when young people should be developing themselves, poor transport provision is preventing them from accessing life-defining opportunities, said the organisation. The report by the University of West of England and walking and cycling charity Sustrans is the first of its kind to focus on this age group who are entering adulthood. Funded by the Health Foundation, it presents new analysis of national travel data compared with insights from in-depth interviews with young people leaving school and college. And the House of Commons Transport Committee will hold the first evidence session of its inquiry into strategic transport objectives this week, examining how the government set out its objectives and how they influence decisions on investment. In the first panel, MPs will question the chairs of the National Infrastructure Commission and the Union Connectivity Review. The cross-party committee will ask whether the government has a clear plan for transport and about proposed changing to the government's strategic transport approach. Questions may be asked about how aligned the planning and appraisal process for new investment is in line with these objectives. And five councils has met this week to agree a local transport strategy, which sets out the vision for fair, sustainable access for all. The wide ranging local transport strategy sets out priorities and provides a roadmap for investment and decision making on transport over the next decade. The strategy, a result of extensive consultation with five communities, partners and stakeholders, reflects the collective aspirations of the region's future, with a focus on addressing key transport issues, planning, prioritising, investing and maximising grant funding and the development of technology. It's the email the industry waits for every lunchtime, our Highways News Midday Briefing. And you can get it too, if you don't already, simply by going to highways-news.com slash subscribe. On our site, you'll also find links to our Twitter and LinkedIn feeds, so you'll always be up to date because we are the only place you need to go for everything you need to know. We are Highways News. Swarco improves quality of life by making the travel experience safer, quicker, more convenient and environmentally sound. 
from software as a service traffic management solutions to parking, VMS, EV charging and road marking too. Find out how Swarco can deliver more efficient and safer traffic management. Swarco, the better way every day. If you have the memory of an elephant, you'll know that back in March last year, we talked to the Future Highways Research Group's Simon Wilson, a director at Proving Services, about new guidance around consistent carbon measurement and reporting, which have been put together along with ADEPT for Scope 1 and 2 greenhouse gas emissions. You have this cascade of reporting which becomes incredibly complex and it's even more fragmented because different supply chain partners have raced to create their own frameworks and standards because they want to be responsible organisations and report their carbon. But this creates this highly uneven landscape for the purposes of reporting. So the role of the FHRG in this particular context is to create a level playing field a series of standardized calculations, recommended measures, and methods for reporting across the supply chain, that's scope one, two, and three, to enable all organizations to be able to compare both their historic position and their current position in a reliable, robust, and repeatable way, but also to be able to benchmark with each other. So that was then Talking Scope 1, which covers direct carbon emissions from local authority-owned or controlled sources, and Scope 2, which is all about indirect emissions from the generation of purchased electricity, steam, heating and cooling consumed by the authority. Well, since then, they've been talking about Scope 3, which, as we find out, is more tricky, addressing supply chain emissions, including emissions from purchased goods and services. Simon joined me again to take up the story. Back in 2022, we'd just completed looking at the internal carbon profiles of local authorities, local highways authorities. And we published the first round of documentation to enable authorities to calculate their scope one and twos. That actually was the least exciting part of the project and the least challenging. The real challenge comes in calculating scope three from supply chain. And that comes with a, a cluster of problems on the basis that the supply chains are typically really very complicated, especially for highways authorities. They're multi-tiered. You have multi-disciplines and multiple disciplines across the supply chain. So you have different people doing different things with different materials, using different processes, working seasonally. And you also have a huge diversity of readiness. Some supply chain partners are very ready to report carbon, but probably not in a consistent way. And some parts of the supply chain are SMEs. They're just local businesses that provide some services, or sometimes as an also-ran. So you've got people like farmers who provide some winter maintenance support on local roads. These guys can't report carbon. So we needed to come up with a process which accommodated the necessary need to report carbon without it becoming a bureaucratic nightmare. And that's the real challenge for local authorities. They just do not have the time, space or money to do this in a big way. So as a permanent process with dedicated teams, they need to be able to do it, get a carbon report out, focus on where the carbon is, and then get on with the day job. So that's that was the challenge that was ahead for Scope 3. Okay, so how have you coped with the challenge? It hasn't been easy. And in fact, it kind of fell apart in the middle because we started with activity-based carbon accounting, where we looked at the units of work for things like winter maintenance or pothole filling, 
being a day and a shift and all of the materials and people that went into that and then multiplied it up by the number that an authority would commission, again, to try and find a shortcut for local authorities to deliver this. Partway through that exercise, we realized that people just do not have the data to do it bottom up, as it's described. Activity-based carbon accounting is a bottom up process. And so we had also built a top-down process, which is an inventory-based process. And that's what we've arrived at because it sustains the accuracy. Most people can get hold of their purchases. Most people know who all their staff are, what all their vehicles are. Their fleet data will give them that. They know where they work from, and they know the stuff they buy within a period of 12 months reporting year. So we moved over as a research art exercise should do, it revealed the flaw in a method, and we then revised the method, and we moved towards this inventory-based approach. And we now have a number of organizations that are reporting on that basis. What do you do with the data when you have it? Well, the punchline is if we're collecting all this data, then we want to be able to benchmark it. We want to be able to, first of all, create a carbon signature for the UK, a big revelation for us as the process has unfolded and we've captured more and more data is carbon is not where we expected to find it. We expected carbon to be entirely in materials and it entirely isn't. It's in people and transport and travel. So the more activity and the, the larger the teams the authority has, the more carbon that they produce. And as more authorities move towards recycling materials, which most of them are now doing, then, of course, the materials profile starts to fall away in terms of its contribution to carbon emissions. Once we have all that data, the goal, the ultimate goal, is this benchmarking process. So we'll have a signature for all local highways in the UK of carbon, but or certainly all the ones that are members, which is a significant number. But then the real goal is to say, how does a unit of works carbon, that is a day shift for pothole filling, compare between authorities of a similar type and what makes them different and how could one authority learn from the other and how does that play out because carbon is only one dimension if we look at cost if we look at operational longevity of the asset if we look at the other dimensions such as operational performance you know how how well does that surface perform skid resistance etc if we make materials changes so there there is a trade space emerging but you need a lot of data for that. And so that's what we're hoping the process and the tool set will begin to capture. And is that where human preferences come in? That You've got the different handles you can pull, as you say, regarding uh, effectiveness, regarding cost and regarding carbon. How do you actually work it so that if you think that actually cost is, is slightly more important, you can tweak it that way? All carbon is the absolute most important thing and we'll just have to live with greater cost or maybe lower performance, then you can do that as well? Yes, you can do that. I would be surprised. So we call some of those constraints. So there is a cost constraint. There is a, a longevity constraint. Nobody is, although we've lived with it with potholes for quite some time, you fill a pothole and you would think that that repair because it's only using a small amount of material, would have a low carbon profile. And in fact, has a spectacularly high carbon profile, not least because you're revisiting the repair fairly frequently. So 
being able to look at those trade spaces is important, but the constraints is currently overriding everything else. It doesn't really matter if somebody comes up with a very low carbon material, because the truth of it is, if it costs more money, authorities are not going to be able to buy it. You've probably seen the landscape in terms of local authority finances. It's horrible. So the idea here is to, to give people, at least people present people with the data, but there are some real things that people can do without affecting the cost profile of the authority. And one of those things has been revealed. We also run a national benchmarking club for local highways authorities. And what we found is the authorities that have the greatest level of efficiency scores in the VFM, Value for Money Benchmarking Club, also have the lowest carbon profiles. So there are things about general efficiency, general effectiveness, policy decisions around the asset that massively improve your carbon performance without you starting to look at expensive solutions. So exposing those things and giving people the information they need to make informed decisions is a design goal of both the standard and the tool set that supports it. Future Highways Research Group's Simon Wilson is our guest on Highways Voices today and we'll talk about the business case of cutting carbon after we've heard some news from our partners. Highways Voices, with the latest news and events from our partner organisations Elkrig, Adept, the Transport Technology Forum and ITS UK. The manager of the Transport Technology Forum, Darren Capes, is to host a question and answer a webinar to assist local authorities with applications for a grant from the £70 million earmarked to make traffic signals more efficient. The online session on Monday the 4th of December at 4pm will support authorities in applying for a share of the money which was announced in the government's plan for drivers last month. It's split into three separate allocations and the challenge process for two of them worth a total of £40 million is now open. Elkrig Chief Executive Paula Clayton Smith talks about Roads to Tomorrow in her blog on the organisation's website this week. So far, there have been nearly 40 councils that have taken part in two workshops, mainly from across the northwest and the Midlands, while they have a northeast workshop in a couple of weeks and then they're going to London in the new year. She calls the insights so far truly fascinating and says they will help the DFT enormously. Read it all on the Elkrig website. Adepters issued its response to the autumn statement with President Anthony Payne saying it is disappointing for public services. He says that while he welcomes the announcement of Round 3 levelling up funding, many local authorities have reached the end of the line when it comes to their capacity to absorb spending cuts without impacting on essential services. The public and the most vulnerable in our communities, he says, can see that many of the services they rely on just aren't working. All the innovation and new practices we introduce are no longer enough to bridge the gap between resource and delivery, he adds. And a reminder, it's ITS UK's SME and Startup Conference on the 5th of December between 10am and 4pm at WSP's offices in Birmingham. The conference will hear from Martin Trainer OBE, Small Business Crown Representative at the Cabinet Office, the government's leading official for SMEs, as well as from representatives from the Department of Transport, National Highways, Connected Places, Catapults, the Crown Commercial Service and more. Following the conference, ITS UK will be hosting a Christmas drinks reception nearby in Birmingham, supported by our friends at Clearview Intelligence. Highways Voices, the podcast from highwaysnews.com. Highwaysnews.com.
Now back to our chat with Simon Wilson. If I were to put CO2 or carbon into the search bar at the top of Highways News, I will get page after page after page of stories about it. Now, some of the most interesting ones are when you actually read about innovations that companies have come up with, where yeah, recycling materials, the top surface of the road on site and using that, mixing it with some new stuff and putting it back down again yeah. is both cheaper and it reduces the amount of carbon produced. Similarly, I've just looked and there's solar road studs, for example, which can go into uh, the road surface. You don't need as many street lights, or in fact, any street lights at all in some places, improve road safety and no emissions once they're installed. Do you think that the work that you have done could actually lead to a lot more of both the uptake of these sorts of innovations, but also the inventing of more solutions that tick the box of reduce cost and reduce carbon emissions at the same time? I think that's exactly what local authorities are going to aim for. They're going to aim for things that take away from their standing costs like street lighting, which has a huge carbon impact. There are a number of initiatives that are being run across local highways authorities in the UK to look at things just as you described them. I think that in-situ and ex-situ recycling are going to become the norm. I think they are growing exponentially across the members at the moment. I recently did a study with one authority that sent zero waste to landfill. All of it was being recycled in road surfaces. And then you've got people like South Gloucestershire going one step further who are doing things like using biochar, so taking vegetation waste, turning it into charcoal and using it as a construction material. So not only is that sequestrating carbon, it's actually augmenting the construction materials that are being used within roads. It's incredibly stable. So that's a live labs project. There are a huge range. We've currently found 73 initiatives across the membership of the FHRG. Some are a little bit more out there than others, but very few of them are swapping one material for another. Most of them are looking at big ticket ideas like the ones that you described. One of the issues we have is that whenever you get something like this, and it, it's it's across everything in the world, you, you come up with a solution and a small group of unscrupulous people will game it. How are we going to avoid people gaming the numbers you know the, the the word greenwashing comes in the whole point of people just playing the game and actually finding ways to cheat the system for their own advantage that has been a real problem with that for us going back five years when we first started in live labs one looking at all the initiatives that we'd found in the uk there were over 150 about 50% of them had no basis in reality. They were just assertions. Save 50% of your carbon, trust me, gov. Um, and there was no basis for that. And so you're absolutely right. Without standardized measurement, without an audit trail, without some degree of transparency and auditability, there can be little trust in what people are making claims around. That has, to some extent, been resolved by things like EPDs. Those certificates are probably a good step in the right direction. However, even with EPDs, we found a degree of 
smoke and mirrors. And so that's a, it's a concern going forward. I think there's also another concern that we're finding within local authorities in that it, there is the so what test. All this carbon analysis is really, really interesting. But from a political point of view, when we interview portfolio holders and politicians in the middle of a, uh, a cost of living crisis, the key question is the authorities that, 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 that we are part of are running out of money. Our communities are really interested in how more potholes we fill, not how much carbon we save. And so there's this other pressure that's coming from communities and coming from politicians, and it's blue and red authorities saying, hold the phone, this carbon thing, unless we can make it work to better people's lives immediately, then why are we spending a lot of time and money on it? Now, you add to the point that you've just made, if we don't believe the initiatives that will improve our position and we haven't measured our carbon position, why are we doing any of it? There are a lot of challenges out there that we've tried to clean up and identify with the work that we've been doing, but there is a long road ahead and it's going to be a politically difficult one. Finally, we talked about scope three involving the supply chain. What sort of suppliers are involved and what sort of suppliers aren't? And what do they need to do to prepare to work with the authorities on the reporting process? I think most of them are capable of reporting their carbon. I think they currently do it in slightly different ways. So there's a degree of inconsistency in their readiness, even if you look at the top five providers in the UK. Their degree of readiness varies between their clients dramatically. So I think that there is a lot of work that needs to be done supply side, and particularly when you see how much they then subcontract to smaller organizations who have no degree of readiness at all. So I think that the supply side of the sector, we have tried, as I say, to make this as unbureaucratic as we possibly can. And so working with big handfuls will allow you to get, and when I say big handfuls, what I mean is, if you cannot analyze to the type of material, at least tell us how much asphalt you put down in 12 months. At least tell us how many street lighting columns you replaced, how many miles you did on vehicles. So by giving them a retreat option to big handfuls of data allows everybody to report. But ultimately, the degree of granularity is going to have to go up. Now, how the sector handles that, we do not know. It hasn't been a terribly easy experience through the research program. Gathering individual line items, transaction items from authorities, even from purchase ledgers and finance systems has been really problematic. So I think it'll start with low levels of granularity. And I think over time, it will need to progress to down to brand names of products and specific carbon facts. But the basic thing, Simon, is great is the enemy of good at the moment. Whatever data we can get, let's get it, let's standardize it, and then we can improve on it rather than looking at it and going, this is just going to go in the too difficult pile and ignoring it. Absolutely. And when you add in the political dimension, which says, why are we doing it at all when the authority is starved of money? You're absolutely right. That's exactly where it'll go. I think most authorities will start with this. Let's do this and it'll be crude, but it will be complete. And then we will improve granularity and accuracy over time. And we are not shying away from that. We have rewritten both the standard and the tool to accept the concept of working 
with high-level data. An honest appraisal of where we are with carbon counting and carbon cutting more generally there with Future Highways Research Group's Simon Wilson, a director of Proving Services. And you can read the latest report by following the link in the blurb. Highways Voices with Paul Hutton and Adrian Tatum. Almost time to go, but not before we found out who wins Adrian's accolade this week. Adrian, over to you. And my accolade this week goes to National Highways. They have committed as part of National Tree Week to donating up to 600,000 trees annually, all from its supply of native trees from a variety of species. National Highways is on the hunt for landowners and organisations that can help it plant an additional 3 million trees by 2030. With sustainability more and more important off the road as it is on, that's why they're worthy winners of our accolade this week. And that'll do it for this week's Highways Voices. Fascinating stuff from Simon Wilson on that must-discuss subject. Now I'm off to visit our friends at Swaco in Austria and record a special podcast from Swaco Traffic World in their HQ in Vuttons near Innsbruck this weekend. I'll bring you that in the new year. And next week, I reckon we'll talk automated, connected, electric and shared mobility. And you can find out all about it if you join us for next week's podcast. So we'll chat then. Highways Voices. Join us again next week for more insights from those that matter in the industry. 